0: Well, today we get to continue working through our sermon series, The Upside-Down Kingdom. You may recall, if you've been with us, that we're working through Jesus' greatest teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, this, this material has impacted the course of world history, and so it's been especially Neat for myself to be in this sermon, to learn from Jesus, um, to just think about his heart and the heart behind his teaching. It's been very helpful for me, and I pray that it's been helpful for you. Jesus, when he came onto the scene, he, he came onto the scene preaching the good news that the kingdom of God was at hand. So repent and believe. Jesus was saying that God's rule and reign is now available to experience. This was the good news that he preached. And, of course, the way he made that possible for us to be a part of his kingdom is through his death and resurrection and life as well. But this is an opportunity of a lifetime. Come, be a part of my kingdom. Have my transforming power transforming you from the inside out and be with me for eternity have life with me come be in, in in an intimate relationship with me this is the opportunity of a lifetime if you have not received this invitation i can't stress enough that you need to do so you need to you need to come to jesus have him for your lord have him for your savior um, today we're going to be looking at how a person that is living in the kingdom, living in the Father's world, in the midst of this world, will be transformed, transformed in regard to sexual purity. And it's a teaching that we desperately need. I think all of you would agree that our world is all about sexual lust. Our American culture celebrates two things in particular. One is sex. The other is violence. Think about the TV shows that are on. They almost always involve a great deal of sex and violence. So we live in this age of extreme sensuality. Um, some, Some people have said that never... In the history of the Western world, since the time of Greek and Roman paganism, has the state of marriage and sexual morality been so low? Sex sells. Everywhere you turn, sexual lust is being encouraged. Advertisements are full of it. As I said, television is overflowing with it. Movies as well. Books and magazines are covered with it. Think about the magazines you see in the checkout lines. At all the stores we go to, almost always it has to deal with sex, affairs, lust, right? Sports have been infiltrated with it. I can honestly only think of maybe one or two ESPN sideline anchors or even people on SportsCenter women that are ugly. They all have super model looks don't they they all do and the guys if you look at the guys they just seem like average joes most of them but not the women same thing goes for news anchors too when's the last time you saw someone who was not very physically attractive being a news anchor Uh, i enjoy taking our boys to Cavs games canton charge games And we really enjoy it, except for the cheerleaders, if you can call them that. They're more like erotic dancers. And we've sat right down on the court um, at Canton Charge Games. And, of course, the cheerleaders are right there. And I have a 9-year-old boy and a 6-year-old boy watching this. And so Mary and I, we try and, like, engage them in conversation, like, like let's go get a bite to eat. But they're, they're up between quarters, you know. It's, it's, they're hard to avoid. And the thing that I think is that probably most of the people at the game don't really even think anything, that there's anything wrong with it. Like, it's just a normal part of our culture that you would have women in literally underwear and a bra Just dancing in all kinds of sensual ways, right? In fact, I think that there are some dads that love it when they see their little guy locked in on one of those dancers. Because in our culture, that's what it means to be a man, right? You drink beer, you watch sports, and you lust. That's how it goes. You check out girls. You lust, lust after them. You fantasize over them. That's what it means to be a man's man. We have been duped into thinking that this is where the good life is found. I uh, remember hearing Tim Brown, the Hall of Fame, like all pro, Heisman Trophy winning receiver. Uh, it was the Los Angeles Raiders that he played for. But I remember hearing him speak a few years back, and he shared how at some points he was dating five to six women. And he sometimes had sex with three different women in a day. It was called the breakfast, lunch, dinner thing. And it was like a rite of passage for the players on the Raiders. And if you could accomplish it, you were the man. And so that was his lifestyle. So we live in this culture that is extremely sensual. It's extremely sexually pros, prom, um, promiscuous. This is the air we breathe. Even adultery, which I would say 60 years ago was extremely taboo in our culture, is not anymore. It's become quite normalized. I think of like the desperate housewives. I can, I can officially say, I've never watched an episode, but I did read the Wikipedia information on the show. And it's about affairs, it's about cheating, it's about all that stuff. Again, this is There We Breathe. What did Jesus have to say about sexual purity? And notice, too, I got everybody's attention. I knew that if I were to preach on sex, there wouldn't be too many people sleeping today. Think about that. Why is it? Why is that? Why is it? Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for you. We are so grateful for your grace. We can boldly come to you in this area that many of us fail in. Knowing that you're not going to reject us, you're not going to shame us. You want to help us, you want to transform us. And because you've paid the penalty for these sins on the cross, there's no wrath for us, just grace, just love, just your transforming power. Lord, I pray that as we look at a section of your sermon on the mount. That you would teach us. And that we wouldn't just become smarter Christians, but we would become more obedient Christians. We pray for that. We pray for your transforming power. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Matthew five twenty-seven through 30. Let me read it to you. So Jesus is speaking, right? And he's really teaching his disciples, but yet there are many that are listening. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In your right eye, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable... For you, that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you, that one of your members perish, than for your whole body to be cast into hell. So, in these verses, when Jesus says to his disciples, you have heard it said... What Jesus was going back to was the Old Testament law that was given um, through Moses by God in the Old Testament, and one of the Ten Commandments was "You shall not commit adultery." Right. So, what Jesus is doing here is he's affirming that commandment, just like he affirmed last time I preached, which was that last Sunday. It seems like a, like five years ago. Um, he he said, "You shall not commit murder." Right. Like. So Jesus is affirming these commandments. They're still good ideas, right? He's not negating that. It's still good and righteous to refrain from committing adultery. No married person should have sexual relations with anyone other than their spouse, and no person should have sexual relations with someone that is married. Doing so would not allow you to live under the good, life-giving rule of God. There is nothing good about adultery. There is nothing good about having an affair. Nothing good about it. In fact, it's one of the most difficult things for a person to experience. The shock, the hurt, the anger is often overwhelming for the person that has been sinned against. And then the ripple effects of such a relationship are so wide and they are so deep some of you have experienced this personally some of you know of people that have engaged in this and have seen the devastation it brings it's no wonder that god said you shall not commit adultery god is not the fun police he knows where the good life is found and he wants you to experience the most joy, the most pleasure, the most happiness, and that's why he has these commands. Jesus, in our passage today, he gives us a window into God's heart when he gave this command, which, by the way, the Jewish religious leaders totally misunderstood In Jesus' day, God's heart behind this command. You see, the Jewish religious leaders thought that they were good, that they were in right relationship with other people so long as they abstained from committing physical adultery. They were sexually pure if they just stayed away from that. But Jesus is saying here in our passage, not so fast. Mm Mm-mm. I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus, he's not given a new law here. He's, that's not what he's doing. What he's doing is helping us to see the intent in God's heart when he gave this law. Jesus was showing that God's command not to commit adultery was never meant to be a command that only addressed the body. But it was also meant to address the movements of one's heart. God knew that we could refrain from physical adultery with our body, just like we could refrain from physical murder But in our heart have all kinds of murderous thoughts, or in our hearts have all kinds of sexually impure, lustful thoughts. God is, his intent was that you would not commit physical adultery, but you would also not commit heart adultery. This is where real abundant life is found. No matter what our world says, this is where real abundant life is found. So, what is exactly adultery of the heart? So, adultery in our heart takes place when we covet a sexual encounter with a person that God has not given to us. That's adultery in the heart. They can be married. They can be unmarried. Married people are obviously off limits, right? God has not given us that person in marriage. Unmarried people are off limits because we're still not yet married to them. And God has not yet given us them in marriage. And it's in the marriage relationship, that's the context in which God designed sex to flourish and be such a blessing to those who participate in it. When we commit adultery in our hearts, we go beyond finding the forbidden person attractive. Which, by the way, is perfectly normal and okay. That's a perfectly normal thing. Obviously, we're going to find people physically attractive. But it's not the first look that gets you in trouble. You may have heard this before. But the second look, the third look, fourth look. The Greek word behind looks in verse 28, it means to turn your thoughts. It means to direct your minds to. A thing, to consider it, to contemplate it, to look at it, to weigh carefully what you're seeing, to examine it. And to lust means to set your heart upon having what you see. So what Jesus was talking about here is forbidding this studying the contours of the attractive person. Imagining and fantasizing about having sexual relations with them. And this was precisely how the religious leaders were committing all sorts of heart adultery. They were refraining from physical adultery, but in their minds and hearts, these, this kind of movie, pornographic movies, were playing in their minds and hearts. And this is how we commit adultery often today, isn't it? This particular form of adultery, heart adultery, is a great temptation for men because we are are easily sexually stimulated by what we see. Women more so by touch, by connection, by those sort of things, actions, words, attitudes, but men by sight. However, I have read that more and more women are struggling with lust from visual stimuli. It's really increased. The amount of women that are consuming uh, pornography has just went through the roof. So we're all capable of sinning in this area. We're all vulnerable in this area. Adultery of the heart is a lot easier to commit, isn't it? We can commit it anywhere, anytime, and without anyone knowing about it. We can commit this sin and still look righteous on the outside. And we lack lack the built-in accountability that other types of sin give us that are more outward and more visible to other people. This is a very easy sin to get hung up in. But we must overcome it, because Jesus says, if we don't, we will have hell to pay. We will have hell to pay. In fact, Jesus says that the stakes are so high when it comes to sexual purity, both in terms of what we do with our body, but also with our hearts, so critical... That he told his audience this in Matthew five twenty nine and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for the whole, your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Wow. Jesus is not beating around the bush, is he? He's not mincing words. Two questions might arise when you read these verses. One is this. Is Jesus really commanding people who commit adultery to gouge out their eyes and cut off their hands? And two, do you have to be sexually pure in order to escape hell? Well, Let's look at that first question. Is Jesus really calling people who commit it? heart adultery, to mutilate themselves. If that were the case, there would be few people on planet Earth that would have eyes or hands. Right? I don't think, and neither do the commentators that I've read, I don't think that Jesus meant that you were to actually go gouge your eyes out and to cut off your hand or hands. What I think Jesus is communicating with this this statement in, in these verses, and I think the scholars agree, is that adultery in the heart is so deadly. And therefore, we should do and be willing to do whatever it takes to remove it out of our lives. And we should be able and willing and, and desire to do everything we can to engage in things that assist us to partner with Jesus so that his power can transform us in this area. That's what I think Jesus means. If something is causing you to sin in this area, change it. Get rid of it, right? Take no prisoners when it comes to this. Second question. Do you have to be sexually pure to escape hell? The answer is, of course, no. We escape hell by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, not by our works. Jesus would be contradicting himself in the rest of the New Testament if he was teaching here that in order for you to escape hell, you got to be sexually pure and get this area in your life together or else you'll burn in hell. It's not what Jesus is teaching. I think what Jesus is teaching here is he's saying that our willingness to see ourselves transformed in this area, our willingness to partner with him so we can have his power transform us from the inside out, doesn't earn us acceptance with him. It proves that we already have it it proves that we already have it. If we have a desire to be holy and righteous in this area, it proves that we already have received the grace of Christ. You see, a person that is truly connected to Christ by faith alone won't be able to just keep on sinning in this area without guilt, without a desire to see this area in their life cleaned. A person that can commit adultery of the heart without blinking an eye and just is flippant and doesn't care proves that they're not a part of God's kingdom and are destined for hell. They don't, the Holy Spirit doesn't allow that. Now, Although a person who is truly a child of God and commits adultery of the heart or body, if, now they don't have to worry about ultimately ending up in hell. But even if you're a child of God and you engage in adultery of the heart or the body, there will still be hellish consequences for you. King David is a case in point, isn't he? His adulterous affair with Bathsheba didn't get him kicked out of the family of God, but he still had to experience some very hellish consequences. His whole family was ripped apart as a result of his decision. Many people don't believe there's hellish uh, consequences with adultery even in the heart. They think, well, yeah, David did it with his body as well, and so that's why they came his way. But I'm telling you, there are hellish consequences, even for those of us that commit adultery of the heart. And it's going to suck the life right out of us, and it will decrease our ability to enjoy the abundant life in God's kingdom that Christ came to give us. Let me give you several reasons how even adultery of the heart will suck the life right out from you. First, lust is the opposite of love for your neighbor. Think about this. Lust is all about gratifying yourself in the moment. It's completely self-centered. It's all about me. You're not concerned about the person you're lusting after. You're not thinking about their welfare. You're not thinking about their needs. You're not thinking about their spouse. You're not thinking about their children or their future spouse or their future children. You're not concerned with the fact that the person you're lusting after is a person that's made in God's image, that is meant to be loved and cared for and protected and respected and not objectified for your own pleasure. You haven't gotten their consent. Lust is the opposite of love for your neighbor. Lust is the opposite of love because it is self centered. It's all about me, it's all about me gratifying my desires secondly lust is the opposite of loving God when we lust we do the same thing that Adam and Eve did in the garden of Eden with the forbidden fruit like Adam and Eve what we do is we say to God you're holding out on us God you're you're withholding something from me that is good that I need to have in order to be happy I don't trust you God I know what's best for me. You don't know what's best for me. I'm the master of my own life. I can find happiness apart from you and your commands. How did that work for Adam and Eve? Not very well. Brought a whole bunch of death. The whole cosmos started to unravel. When we put people or things or sexual pleasure on the throne of our hearts instead of God our life starts to unravel and our intimacy with God is compromised because we're actually cheating on God. That's what we're doing. We're cheating on him because we are seeking ultimate fulfillment outside of our relationship with him. That's what Adam and Eve did. They cheated on God. And you know, the enemy Just like he did with Adam and Eve, he will always try to get us to fill legitimate desires with illegitimate means. This is what the enemy does. In this case, he will try and get you to fulfill your legitimate desire for sexual pleasure and intimacy and connection with the illegitimate means of adultery of the heart or adultery of the body. Thirdly, so lust is the opposite of love for your neighbor and love for God. It's also the opposite, or no, sorry. Thirdly, lust fuels discontentment. If your heart is like set on and craving for the thing which has not been given to you, you're going to get discontent. You're going to be Restless. You'll be feeding yourself the lie that if you just had what you were lusting for, then you would be at peace. Then you would be happy. Lust narrows your field of vision onto the one thing that hasn't been given to you to the exclusion of all the wonderful gifts God has given to you. And so what it does is it sucks out gratitude from your hearts. You're unable to count your blessings. And once gratitude is replaced with ingratitude, you become a miserable person. You become one of those people that I hate the world, get off my grass kind of person. Lust fuels discontentment. It says, God, what you've given me is not enough. I'm angry and I'm bitter and I'm entitled to it. So give it to me. Fourthly. Adultery of the heart always precedes adultery with the body. This is so important. Adultery of the heart doesn't always lead to a person committing adultery with their bodies. But when physical adultery does happen, it is always preceded by heart adultery. And so when we feed the lust in our hearts... We're putting ourselves on a very slippery slope. And you know what? It's often our pride at this point that tells us that we won't fall. We're in control. We've got it. But if you keep playing with fire, right? You know what? When we're feeding lust in our heart, often the only thing that's keeping us from committing physical adultery is the right set of circumstances. That's it. Cultivating lust in your heart is saying, I would if I could. Or I would if it wouldn't cost me too much. This is not the righteousness of the kingdom. This is the righteousness of the Pharisees. And you know what's the worst thing about it at all? Those who have the, the, the heart adultery going on, and it eventually does turn into physical adultery. It's such a sad thing when they finally get this thing that they've been lusting after. And that too doesn't bring them the fulfillment and the satisfaction that they thought it would. They finally got the one thing and it doesn't deliver. Talk about despair. Talk about what, what's next. Oh, how Satan loves to get us to fall. (laughs) And then when we fall, he loves to say, You idiot, you fool, how could you have done that? Right? I mentioned Tim Brown earlier. Here's the rest of his story. Brown eventually got so low from his adulterous life that he couldn't even stand to look at himself in the mirror. Literally, he did his hair, he brushed his teeth in the dark. In the bathroom. He couldn't look at himself. Couldn't look at himself. He would often think about the women he had hurt because they really wanted a relationship with him. He also started thinking about if a man was to treat his nieces or his sister or one of his future daughters the way that he had been treating women. Brown said that it was an addiction that he couldn't get himself out of. But then on June 26, 1996, Brown, in the middle of the night, it was 3 in the morning, got down on his knees and he said, Lord, I cannot, I cannot overcome this. You need to save me, was his exact words. And the Lord did. And his teammates really thought, oh, this will last for like three weeks and then Tim Brown will be The same Tim Brown that we have known for years. But the Lord gave him the power to abstain from sex. Brown developed a new habit of the heart. When women would come on to him, he would tell them that the reason he couldn't be with them is because he had met Jesus. That was his response. That became the thing that he trained himself in. And that became the habit of his heart. He was really tested six months into surrendering his life to Christ. He was on a flight, I think, back home from a football game, and he said he saw the most attractive Hispanic uh, flight stewardess like he's ever seen. And this, this, this woman wanted to hook up with him. And he told her, there's no doubt in my mind what would be happening 45 minutes after we got off this flight. But I met somebody six months ago, and it's because of that it won't happen. Brown stated that. So she asked if I had a girlfriend, and I she asked if I had a girlfriend, and I said yes, I do. But the person I met was Jesus Christ. Soon after this, Brown met his wife, a committed believer. Um, I'm sure they don't have a perfect marriage because that doesn't exist. But they have four beautiful children, and I don't believe that tim brown is sleeping around right like god has rescued him in this area so let me close with this and we could preach multiple messages on just this section of the sermon but this is important how do you overcome lust of the heart how do you overcome lust of the body first we need to have a vision you need a vision you know who's that vision it's jesus You could read in the Gospels how Jesus dealt with women. Utmost respect, love, care. Look, we need to know that freedom is possible. Freedom is possible in this area. I feel like a lot of Christians don't even believe freedom is possible. And they can't can't even imagine. They don't have a vision for a life free from the bondage of lust but it is possible, and we need to catch that vision. Imagine living free of it. Daydream about that. See yourself, and you're not caught up in that. Secondly, we must be committed to the vision. Like Tim Brown, we got to get on our knees before God, and we need to say, Lord, save me. Carry out this vision that you have given to me. And then we need to engage in a training plan. We need to engage in a plan to partner with Jesus so we can put ourselves before him continually and he can transform us by the power of his Holy Spirit. Any training plan, and this goes for anger, this goes for any of the virtues or or the fruit of the spirit that need to be developed in our life, we can use the same process. And any training plan needs to have Three components to it. Knowledge. There's going to be truth that you're going to need to acquire on this topic. Guess what? God's word has it. And there's also a lot of Christian authors and books and resources that can help supplement that as well. So what scriptural truths do you need to know in this area? What books might be helpful for you to read to partner with God to combat this sin in your life? Next, the next thing you need... You need need information, you need knowledge, you need God's truth, but you also need experiences. How will you practice what God is teaching you? What activities do you need to engage in? Tim Brown had to engage in the activity of that response when women would approach him. That was an activity and experience he had to repeatedly engage in. What spiritual disciplines do you need to engage in? What things do you need to limit? What does your rule of life need to be? And then, for example, one might be a breath prayer that you uh, habitually start to engage in when you're tempted to lust. Maybe it's a breath prayer from Psalm 63.3. Because your love is better than lust, the eyes of my heart will glorify you. I'm not sure what those experiences need to be for you. And then you need community. So you need truth, you need need, um, experiences, and then you need community. Who's going to be praying for you? Who's going to be your accountability partner? Who's going to support and challenge you? You need to have that. I believe that as we catch God's vision for this area, as we... Commit to that vision as we discern a training plan from God that we can engage in, God will transform us. It won't happen automatically, but He will cause us to grow over time. Why? Because God will continue the good work that he has started in you. He will see it to completion. He doesn't grow tired. He doesn't grow weary. You are his masterpiece. He wants you living in the most fullest, pleasurable, happy, abundant life, joyful life possible. That's what he came to give you. And he has redeemed us for the purpose to conform us into the image of his son, so that Christ would be the firstborn of many brothers who all resemble the glory of the Father. That's why he has redeemed you. Hmm. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for coming to give us abundant life. Thank you that you made available. Life in your kingdom, life with you under your good, loving rule that leads to real pleasure, that leads to real satisfaction, that leads to real significance, real security. Lord, I pray that, and I want to make the connection as I talk to you and, and thank you for it, that the reason we can come to you with this area of weakness that we have is because of what you have done for us on the cross because you were willing to be placed there, because you were willing to bear our sins, because you were willing to pay the penalty for them, we have this opportunity of a lifetime to be in your kingdom, to receive your forgiveness, and to come with you, come to you with all of our baggage, with all of our flaws, with all of our weaknesses. Lord, thank you that we are a new creation in you. That we no longer have to live slaves to sin. We can consider ourselves dead to sin. We no longer have to be under its tyrannical rule. Lord, I pray that if there are people here that are struggling in this area, and I guarantee there are, that they wouldn't be satisfied with continuing to wallow in the mud. That they would come to you, partner with you. That they would engage in the steps that I mentioned, so that they can see you transform them. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.